thanks for those that prayed for us this weekend. Uh, Matthew and Daniel and Ricky and myself and, and Kent went up to Morganton Friday night and they backed down in terms of the gospel track distribution, the preaching. We even sang a quartet, that same hymn, How Great Thou Art, out there on the public square. Nobody much listened, but it was a blessing to me. And I was kind of hoping they'd arrest us, if they were going to arrest us, to arrest us for singing or, or handing out tracts. But it wasn't going to happen. We did have to put our cross away. It was called a potential deadly weapon. But sometimes you fight certain battles and you don't fight others. And I think it was just more a case of the police wanting to shut this woman up that kept making issues. But it's really sad when uh, men stand by and let women usurp authority that they don't have in certain contexts. One of those is in the church and the other one of those is when they're not part of law enforcement and try to act like law enforcement. And the other guys just stand there and let it happen. But the Word of God did go out. The city backed down. And those ridiculous rules were not enforced. So we thank God for that. And we thank God for some of the conversations that we had. And, and uh, that um, hopefully some soul was convicted. So thanks for the guys that went out and represented the church. And it was a good time. And uh, praise God no one was arrested or anything like that. So, um, alright, I want to get back into uh, Revelation chapter 3 this morning. And... Lord willing, we're going to easily finish up the message to the church at Laod—I mean, at Philadelphia today. And then, Lord willing, I can introduce some things about Laodicea next week, and then we'll just go wherever the Lord wants us to go. These last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Philadelphia as a picture of the remnant church. Uh, Philadelphia, the faithful remnant. There is no condemnation, no criticism from our Lord to this church. It's just a commendation, a threefold commendation. We talked about that last week. Philadelphia was a church that was of little strength. That means they had a proper perspective. Without me, Christ said, you can do nothing. They were a church that had kept God's Word, the whole counsel of God, and they were a church that had not denied His name. They were a faithful witness. And that brought commendation from the Lord. We talked about who this Jesus is that was addressing Philadelphia. He that has the key of David. And we linked that to the key of David mentioned in the Old Testament regarding Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, the great type of Christ there in the days of Hezekiah. And I explained how the contrast there is between man-centered ministry and God-centered or Christ-centered ministry. And that's the contrast really presented here between Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. Okay? We've talked a little bit about how Philadelphia in the periods of the church history represents basically the 18th and 19th centuries in history when God poured out revival on the human race and sent missionaries to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to many Gentile nations that had never um, heard. And those that had a little strength, God gave a great open door. And as a result, spiritual awakening and revival came here in America and in Europe. The Bible was translated into languages in foreign lands. There's a Christian witnesses in foreign lands even today that are a remnant of that. I recall years ago, my wife and I and Bethany, who was a baby at the time, um, were in, a, in Calcutta in India on our way to um, uh, Darjeeling. And we spent a few days there. Calcutta is the, the city where Mother Teresa and her, her uh, work was located. A lot of poor people there. 
the dregs of Hinduism. It's a center for the worship of the Hindu goddess Kali, which is called the goddess of blood. I find it very interesting, and I'm not really a big conspiracy theorist. I mean, the whole history of the world is a conspiracy of Satan to try to overthrow God, which will never work. But it's interesting how all of these places around the world that have the name or the, the, the word Kali or Kali in it seem to be places that are centers of sin and debauchery. I think of California. Uh, it's just it's interesting to see that. But Calcutta is named after the goddess Kali. Uh, well, that's actually the British name, but it comes from Kolkata uh, is the uh, uh, the Hindi or, or the Hindi name, but uh, or the Bengali name. But it's a center for that worship. There's a great temple there. And Kali's the goddess of blood, and they sacrifice goats to her. It's very brutal. She's usually pictured with a big old long, long tongue hanging out and a stick with human skulls on it, and sometimes even holding a human head with blood dripping. And the people worship her in fear. And Jamie and I wanted to go down to this temple and go inside, because it's kind of a tourist trap too, and give out some gospel tracts in there. And it was just a dark, dark place. And I remember some temple guy tripping and spilling some kind of garbage from, for the altar all over me. It was disgusting. But, and these little white westerners were walking through there and getting tikas on their head. I mean, it was ridiculous. And they were worshiping the devil in there. Hacking goats' heads off left and right. It was disgusting. But we were very oppressed in our spirit from being in that place. And as we left, we was like, we got to get out of here. As we left, we walked a few blocks away and heard singing. And interested, we were interested, poked our interest, so we followed the voices, and here we did, we came around the corner, and there was a little Baptist church there, William Carey Baptist Church. It was a Baptist church that was founded as a result of William Carey and his work during the Philadelphia church period, and that place was still there in the heart of darkness, and there were believers gathered in there singing praises to Christ just a few blocks from where Satan was being worshipped. And it was a great encouragement. It was a testimony of what God did during that Philadelphia church age and what He still can do today with the remnant. But today I want to move on and finish this up from verses 10 into 13. Um, not only has Christ, or verse 9 to 13, not only has Christ commended the church, now He gives them a promise. Because of their faithfulness, Christ delivers a promise to the church. A promise that also um, applies to the remnant body of today and the remnant body that has existed throughout all of church history. So let's look at that. Let's start with verse 9. Christ has commended them for having a little strength. You've kept my name. You've not denied my... You kept my word. You've not denied my name. We talked about that last week. Behold, verse 9, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Verse 9 is a promise of vindication. A promise of vindication. Those that love the Lord and that faithfully follow Christ, despite what is said about them by others claiming to know Christ, will be vindicated by our Lord Himself. We should not seek vindication from the mouths of men but the ultimate vindication that comes from God. Notice here that Jesus makes reference to those who claim to be Jews, but are not, but are really of the synagogue of Satan. 
There's another message to one of the seven churches that Jesus makes reference to this exact same thing. Those that are claiming to be Jews that they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. Do you remember who that was? That church also shares something else in common with Philadelphia that none of the other churches share. It was the message to the church at Smyrna. He says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So the two churches that are not criticized by Christ, in those messages, references made to those that say they are Jews, but are really of the synagogue of Satan. Well, what's being talked about here? Why is this reference being made to Jewish people? And does it have application to the church today? First of all, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Paul in Romans defines for us what a true Jew is. And some people try to look at this and say, well, here's proof that the church is the new Israel. And that being Jewish is not ethnic, it's completely spiritual. And that we as Christians are Jews. And they will point to this passage in Romans 2. It says in Romans 2 verse 28, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. If you take those verses out of their context and let them stand along, maybe that could lead you to believe that a Jew isn't ethnic. A Jew is someone that just believes in God and follows Christ. So we're all Jews. But you have to read it in context. In context, Paul in chapter two, or chapter 1 has explained why the whole world, the Gentiles, are guilty before God. In chapter 2, Paul has explained why the moral man or the one that is a good person in the eyes of the world is guilty before God. And then at the end of chapter 2, he explains why the Jew, the ethnic Jew, is guilty before God. And then he explains the difference between a Jew, a false Jew, and a true Jew. A true Jew is one who's not only ethnic, but one who follows and fears the God of Israel and lives by His Word. One who is circumcised of the heart and not just of the flesh. Jesus preached against those who thought just because they'd been circumcised in the flesh, they were automatically uh, saved or automatically in favor with God. Even the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, I will circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Circumcision was just an outward symbol of what was supposed to be an inward change, just like baptism for the church. Jeremiah talked about those uh, who were circumcised of the heart as opposed to flesh. So what Paul here is saying is that true Jews are ethnically Jewish and spiritually Jewish. False Jews are just ethnically Jewish. So you can't differentiate or you can't separate the ethnic side of it. Go on to chapter 3. Verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? If he's talking about the church, then chapter 3 makes no sense because Paul is saying the advantage the Jew has is that through him or his people, the Scriptures were given to mankind. That's the advantage of the Jew. But just because someone is born Jewish doesn't make them saved. Circumcision is of the heart. But God has made promises to the nation of Israel. And there's coming a day, as you read later in Romans, 
that in a single day, at one time, the entire nation will wake up that is living at that time and place their faith in Messiah and wait for Him to deliver them. And that He will. When all the Gentile armies are gathered to overthrow her, He will come and split the Mount of Olives and enter into that eastern gate and set up a kingdom. So, he who is truly Jewish is ethnically Jewish and spiritually Jewish. Okay, Just like he who is a true Christian is a Christian in name and a Christian in heart. But this is making reference to Jewish people and differentiating between Jewish people who did not fear or follow the things of God and did not recognize their Messiah and Jewish people who did follow the things of God and did recognize their Messiah. This isn't talking about the church. Just read verse 1 of chapter 3 and you know that. So that being the case, why is reference being made to Jews here in the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia and not just fake followers of Jesus Christ. Well, the reason I believe is that in John's day, and you can see this in the book of Acts, the Jews were the most inveterate enemy of the church. They were the sole persecutors of the church in Palestine. And in other places where they didn't have the power to persecute the church, what did they do to see that the church was persecuted? What, what, were they, what was it typical for them to do? Remember when Paul went to Thessalonica? They stirred the people up. <laughs> so the Jews were the chief persecutors of the church in Palestine. They're the ones that got Pilate to crucify Christ. They're the ones that, that uh, you know, had, had Peter and John arrested and, and brought persecution to the church in Acts 4. And in places that they did not directly oppose the gospel, they were known for instigating others that did. Uh, and so you had these Jews claiming to be Jews because they were circumcised in the flesh and claimed to follow the law, but they missed the Messiah. And those Jewish people, most of the New Testament church, the original church in the New Testament, this is something Ricky and I like to share with Jewish folks, were all Jewish. It was a Jewish church. The first pastor of the first Christian church was Jewish. But the Jews were the chief enemy of the Gospel in John's day. And so this is making reference to the persecutors that those at Philadelphia knew well. Thessalonica, Paul went into Thessalonica with Silas in Acts chapter 17 and preached the gospel. And people listened, the Gentiles listened, but the Jews stirred up the crowds so Paul and Silas had to leave. Then they went to Berea where there were noble Jews who studied the Scriptures to see if the things being preached were so. But what happened? The Jews from Thessalonica followed them to Berea and stirred them up. That was par for the course in the days of the New Testament church. Now, does that mean Jews are Christ killers? No. I hate that terminology. I've heard filthy, wicked Gentiles that call themselves Christian look at a Jew and call him a Christ killer. That makes me so angry. There's no such thing as a Christ killer. Jesus said in John, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. The Jews didn't kill Christ. The Romans didn't kill Christ. Pilate didn't kill Christ. Jesus laid His life down and then He took it up again by His own power. So these passages or these remarks here about Jewish people don't justify us having prejudice toward them because they rejected the Messiah. 
Because God's still saving Jewish people and He will save them again. Read Romans chapter 11 and see the warning there to those Christians who would take such an attitude toward a people that God used to reveal His character to all of mankind throughout history. But the reason this is mentioned here is because in John's day, the immediate context of the letter, they were the chief persecutors of the church and they instigated others to do so. I think it does apply today. It applies today in a similar vein because today, particularly in America, unbelieving quote-unquote Christians, man-centered churchianity is doing the same thing that the first century Jews did to the church. Persecution and instigation toward those who would keep God's Word and preach the Gospel. And we saw evidence of that Friday night in downtown Morganton. The woman who was in charge of the festival that made such a huge stink about us distributing tracts and peacefully preaching the Gospel on a public square claimed to be a Christian. And then she got the police involved and demanded that they arrest us claiming to be a Christian. It's no different. And what does Jesus say about those who claim to be Christians and yet take an attitude like this toward those who are living out their Christianity? Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. In other words, behold, I will make them of the church of Satan who say they are Christians and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. The great revival preachers of the Philadelphia church period knew all about this. George Whitfield, the great preacher who traveled up and down the 13 colonies, and do you realize that his ministry of open air preaching from Georgia to Maine did more than anything else to unite the 13 colonies in such a way that they could collectively stand against Britain in the war of the American Revolution? You won't find that in your history book. But before the preaching circuits of George Whitfield, the 13 colonies were basically like 13 different countries. And that provided something that caused people to travel between colonies to hear the preacher and to develop a camaraderie one for another. So the attitude began to change from separate 13 colonies to one nation against Britain. It's very interesting how God used a street preacher to do that. But Whitfield was quoted as saying this, They have closed the church doors against us, but bless God, the fields are open. People like Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards and others, Stearns here in North Carolina, these men were ostracized by the established churches and found themselves on the outside. Those that claimed to know God, but had disdain for the preaching of the Gospel. Bless God, the fields were open. And it's good that the fields were open, because soon, men like Whitfield would be preaching to crowds as high as 60,000 people. There wasn't a church building in all of North America that could have held that many people. Now think about this. At the Notre Dame-Michigan football game last night, there were 115,000 people gathered in that stadium to watch that football game. It was a record crowd. Now that's a lot. Now just take half of that. Imagine that huge Michigan stadium in Ann Arbor. It's a big one. They call it the big house. Okay, imagine that full. That's crazy. But just take half of the people there. One side of that stadium. That's still overwhelming. There was a crowd... 
half the size of that stadium last night that, were, that came and heard the street preacher. And there weren't microphones back then. Can you imagine that? What a crazy thing to happen. We don't see that much today. But God did it. And He gave an open door. And praise God. Praise God that the churches were closed then because the, they couldn't have held those crowds. And God brought revival and vindication to those faithful men who were obedient even when the churches were closed against them. This same Whitfield spoke of preaching and having people blow trumpets in his ears, throwing pieces of dead cat at him. I've seen a famous picture, a painting of Whitfield the preacher, and he's standing on some kind of a log preaching, and there's people gathered around. There's a guy swinging a sword in front of him, I think, trying to intimidate him. There's another person blowing the trumpet in his ear. There's some crazy woman out there raising her hands and making a big deal. People mocking. People doing all sorts of things, and yet he's preaching with the Bible in his hand. He's preaching unfazed. Praise the Lord for that. I can't help but think of John 16, 1-4. through Jesus' words and warning. Let's turn there for a moment. John 16. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders, the religious Jews of His day, and I think the spirit of those words goes toward the religious quote-unquote church of today who would ostracize the remnant. Jesus here in John 16 is speaking to the remnant. Why are we surprised when we suffer at the hands of the church for being faithful to the Word of God? Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you them. Christ warned us ahead of time. Why are we surprised? Some, some will kill us thinking they're doing God's service. And I don't think that's talking about necessarily Muslims in a foreign country. I think it could be talking about pastors and churchgoers here in America. That day is coming. Criticism and persecution from those who claim to know God is inevitable for the faithful follower of God's Word. But take heart, brethren. Jesus not only sees this obstruction for what it is, in the message to the church at Smyrna, He calls it blasphemy. He calls it the synagogue of Satan. Here in Revelation 3, it's lies. Jesus sees it for what it is. Jesus sees the rantings of that lady in Morganton for what it is. He's not fooled. And He promises vindication for these false charges for the faithful remnant. Vindication. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 66. This same exact promise of vindication is given here to the remnant. The remnant is described in the message to the church at Philadelphia as those that keep God's Word. Notice how the remnant is described here in Isaiah 66. This is a great faithful promise to those who stand on the Bible when the church is saying just the Bible is just the Word of God. Verse 4. I mean, verse 5. No, no, actually, we're going we're gonna, to... Let's read a couple of verses here. Let's get the context. Let's start at verse 1. 
This is powerful. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? This is a right written against the religious Jews of Isaiah's day who boasted in the temple and boasted in their religion. God said, Where's my, Heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. Just because you built me a temple doesn't make you right with me. Verse 2, For all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look. Even to him that is religious? No. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and does what? Trembleth at my word. Now look at, listen to God's view of religion, verse 3. This is God's view of religion. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices the lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. It's possible to engage in religious, religious ritual that was meant to bring glory to God with the attitude of the heart and it to be just as bad as idolatry. Some of the choir singing in churches this morning in America is as if someone took swine's blood and poured it on the altar in a temple in Jerusalem. Some of the invitations and the sermons preached by pastors this morning across America is as if the folks listening bowed down to an idol because they honor God with their lips and their heart is far from Him. Don't tell me you love God and honor Him with your lips if you disdain the preaching of the Gospel. You disdain the labor of your brethren and sisters in Christ who are trying to preach the Gospel in public. And you care more about your booth or your business than you do the Gospel. That's God's view of religion. Verse 4, I will also choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, none did hear. You see the, the uh, uh, relationship here to what's being said to the churches, and we'll see this in, 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 in Laodicea, Christ is knocking, no one's answering, no one's listening, knocking on the church. But they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at His word, the remnant, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my namesake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. What a great promise of vindication for the faithful remnant. Who is the faithful remnant? He that keeps God's Word. He that trembles before God's Word. Tremble is to submit ourselves to the authority of, to fear, to believe, to take seriously, to cherish, to treasure. If we love Jesus, we treasure His Word. We tremble before it. We live as if these words are ultimate authority. And unfortunately, that is what has been cast out of the churches in America today. The remnant keeps and trembles before the Word of God, and as a result, the remnant's ostracized by religious Christianity, by American churchianity. But take heart, Christian. Your brethren that hated you and said, let the Lord be glorified, I've had people that call themselves Christians tell me when I'm preaching, Jesus hates you and you're going to burn in hell for what you're doing. The Word says, take heart. God will appear to your joy and they'll be ashamed. Jesus says here, uh, back in Revelation, 
of those same folks. Um, I will make them that are of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, fake Christians as well, the application stands. Behold, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I love thee. I've had them say to me, Jesus doesn't love you. He hates people like you. They'll learn otherwise. Those that fear God's Word and believe the Bible and tremble before it, those that hurl these false accusations will learn otherwise. God promises to vindicate those who have been criticized and who have been obstructed by those claiming to know God. What a faithful promise from God's Word. So many that claim to follow Jesus, I really believe, are worshiping an idol that they've created in their own mind. Because this Jesus doesn't represent the God of the Bible. This young man who claimed to be a Druid priest the other night, what a joke! Never even been to Scotland where Druidism originated. And of course, he came by spewing off Matthew 7, 1, judge not, and then tried to claim what Jesus would and wouldn't do. And uh, he couldn't handle the biblical truth that Jesus and God do hate. They not only hate sin, they hate the workers of iniquity, Psalm 5.5. And that was a hard truth that caused this guy to go into a tailspin. He got so angry. But those of us that know the saving power of the Gospel understand that. That God hates wickedness. And wickedness is nothing apart from the wicked one who does wickedness. And I said to him, because Jesus hates sin and hates... or because God hates sin and hates sinners, you need Jesus. That's your only escape from the righteous hatred of God. And he got so angry and then wanted to start quoting Jesus as if Jesus was somebody he admired and followed. Now folks, there are people out here that are serving a Jesus. One day he's going to take his mask off. It's going to reveal something that's not even Jesus. I couldn't help but thinking of this. It's been a long time ago. There was this woman who wrote a book who used to be steeped in... She was some kind of a New Age priestess or something. And she eventually got saved. Or a psychic healer. And she had this... One of these spirit guides she had was Jesus. And Jesus would appear to her and talk to her and look, for all practical purposes, looked like the image that most people think Jesus is. And then one day, this Jesus she was listening to took his mask off and revealed a devil and scared her. And it was instrumental in this woman, woman I believe, coming to Christ. I don't know the whole story. But she wrote a book called The uh, Beautiful Side of Evil. It's an interesting read. But this Jesus that everybody thinks they're following one day is going to take the mask off and it's going to be Antichrist. I couldn't help but see in the news yesterday where the Pope gathered all these accolades for standing and gathering this huge crowd to pray and fast for peace. 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 And as I read that and read comments of people who were all giddy about this, I thought, something's not right here. This, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This isn't the spirit of Christ. Because the focus wasn't on Christ, the source of peace, it was on man. Dangerous. Is the Jesus we're following Jesus as He is in truth? Jesus as He stood before the churches? Or is it a devil that's going to remove his mask one day and reveal lust and pleasures and man-centered notions? Just because someone uses the name of Christ doesn't mean it's Christ they worship. But take heart, believer. 
those that follow the Lord, those that tremble before His Word, no matter what they say about you, they'll kick you out of their churches. Some will kill you thinking they do God's service. God will vindicate those that follow Him. I can't help but also think of another interesting passage here, and I'll just read it real quick. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Payback to those who persecute the saints of God is a righteous thing with God. Notice two things. It's a righteous thing. And secondly, it's God's to do, not ours. It's God's. Vengeance is mine. So it's not our place to go out here and fight for the gospel and draw swords and get them back when they persecute us. It's God's responsibility, but it's a righteous thing. It's a righteous thing. I often tell people when I'm sharing on the streets, they get so aggravated and say that, you know, if if heaven's a place where people like you are going to be, I don't want to go there. I'll gladly burn in hell and curse God. I said, of course you'll, you'll, you'll curse God. But know that on that day, the righteous, when you are cast into hell by the, by the righteous and final decree of a holy God, know that the righteous will stand in applause. That God and His gospel has been vindicated. Man, they can't handle that. But that's what's communicated right there. Isaiah 66. Hard truth. Hard truth. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but the Bible is just written by men. It can't be interpreted literally. That's the people that Jesus is speaking against here. Not only in Isaiah, but in Revelation 3. The synagogue of Satan. Liars, blasphemy. On a side note, Isaiah 49, the same promise of vindication is given to the remnant of the nation of Israel. I'm not going to read it this morning. Those that waited for the Lord amongst the people of Israel to fulfill His promises to the nation. That same promise of vindication in the face of those oppressors who denied or rejected God's promises to the nation. It says in verse 23 of Isaiah 49 that those who persecute the Jewish nation, deny and reject God's promises to them, will lick up the dust of their feet when God restores them according to His promise and puts Messiah on His throne in Jerusalem. That's an interesting thing to think about if you go around touting replacement theology and covenant theology. God promises vindication to the faithful. He also promises deliverance. Verse 10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them which dwell upon the earth. What is this a reference to, you think? What is this hour of tribulation or hour of temptation that Christ is promising deliverance from to the church. It's that period of tribulation. Daniel's 70th week. A seven year period, the last half of which is the great tribulation. It's a period of time in human history that serves two purposes when we study the Scriptures. Number one, it serves to try them that dwell upon the earth. Right here in this verse. That's the purpose. To pour out God's wrath upon mankind and its wickedness. 1 Thessalonians 5. That's the one purpose. To try the earth and to pour out God's wrath. And then the second purpose is to wake up the nation of Israel and turn them back to God. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30. Daniel 12. 
hints on this purpose. Those are the purposes of that tribulation that's coming, that will precede the second coming of Christ. That will take place, I believe, after the, sometime after the rapture of the church. The deliverance that is promised here is the deliverance that God... It's, it's a deliverance after the manner of what God did with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's look up Luke chapter 17. We need to remember the story of Lot. Remember how Paul tells us in the, in the New Testament that the Old Testament was given for our learning, for our exhortation, and that these examples reveal to us God's character. Luke chapter 17, Jesus talks about how it will be in the last days, just like it was in the days of Noah, men ate and drank and married and given in marriage until the Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Okay, here you got Noah entered the ark, he was delivered. Likewise, verse 28, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It, if you read all of the stories referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, you see that God's judgment could not come until Lot got out with his family. That's why the, the angels hastened. You've got to hurry. You've got to get out of here. Lot was delivered and it was when he went out of Sodom that the judgment came. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him not likewise return back. Remember Lot's wife. Was Lot's wife taken or left behind? Left behind. She was left behind because she looked back. Became a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. And then it goes on. In that night there shall be two in one bed, and one shall be taken. The other left, like Lot's wife, left as a pillar of salt. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken. Taken like Lot, taken out, delivered, rapture. The other left, left like the pillar of salt, Lot's wife. Verse 37, and they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? They weren't asking where are they being taken, they were asking where are they being left behind. And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. They were being left behind to judgment. Judgment. But for the remnant body of Jesus Christ, deliverance is promised from these things. 2 Peter chapter 2 draws the, draws the comparison to Lot and the manner of his deliverance from Sodom and Gomorrah. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Listen to this. For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example or an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Are we vexed from day to day living in this society like Lot? Because the society of the day is just like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Look at verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. That's how God's always acted when it comes to the godly and His judgment. So, in my opinion, how can the doctrine of the rapture be something that somebody just came up with in the 19th century when it reflects the character of God going all the way back to the days of Enoch, Noah, and Lot? That's what He does. And the deliverance promised here to the Philadelphian church is deliverance after the manner of Lot. It's the promise of the rapture of the church spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. It's funny. Remember how I talked about how little words can be so important? Pronouns? Here in verse 10, we have a little preposition that's so important. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. It's interesting because the Greek preposition used there is ek. Okay? I don't like to pronounce Greek words because you're never going to remember it. But that word ek means from in terms of out of. Okay? So that word from can mean out of in the English language as well. Okay? So, what is being said here is that I will keep you out of the temptation that is coming to try the earth. Deliverance outside of, not through or inside of. That preposition doesn't allow for that interpretation here. Okay? The rapture is presented here as an imminent hope. Verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Quickly doesn't mean necessarily soon. It means the pace at which it happens. Sudden. The manner of His coming, not the time. Sudden. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. It's an imminent promise for the remnant. Without the rapture, in my opinion, the imminency of Christ's return doesn't exist. Because we know certain things that have to happen you know, in terms of Israel and Israel's judgment and the 70th week of Daniel and the rise of Antichrist and the, and the seal and the trumpet judgments and all that, we can see all these things in the Scripture and we can plot a timeline for the return of Christ and His second coming. So how can Christ's coming be as a thief or sudden if it, those passages are talking about His second coming? It can't be. Imminency... Christ's return for His church has been imminent since the first century. That means it could come at any time. That's where imminency comes from. The doctrine of the rapture. Notice the order of things. The promise of deliverance to the Philadelphia church out of the tribulation. Revelation 3. Then you get to Revelation 4. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and he sees a door in heaven and then a voice that says, come up hither, and he's translated. That's a picture of the rapture of the church. And then Revelation 5, where is the church? When the, the title deed of the earth is given to the Lamb of God and He begins to open the seals, the church is in heaven. The tribulation begins with the first seal, Revelation chapter 6. When Antichrist comes in, he comes in as a man on a white horse with a bow and no arrows. He comes in with flatteries and promises of peace. I couldn't think about that white, 
help but think about that white horse when I read the words of the Pope last night. A bow without arrows. The revelation begin, tribulation begins Revelation 6. Then you have the servants of Israel sealed and preserved through the revelation. I mean, through the tribulation, Revelation 7. Notice what God did the same thing back in the days of the flood. Enoch was translated out before the judgment. Noah was preserved through the judgment. Enoch, a type of the church, translated out. Noah, a type of the servants of God from, from the, of the Jewish people, preserved through the judgment. So notice the order of events. You can, read, you can see this in the, as, as Revelation unfolds and it's evident that the rapture must take place sometime before the beginning of the tribulation. When does the tribulation period begin? When does that 70th week of Daniel begin? Daniel tells us in chapter 9 it begins when Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. Well, Antichrist has to come to power before he signs a peace treaty. I believe the battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 between Russia, Iran, and those Middle Eastern nations that try to take Israel over and God miraculously delivers them, I think that has to be sometime before the beginning of the tribulation. So the Antichrist may reveal himself and he may rise to power while we're still here, but I don't believe we'll be here when that treaty is signed because that's when the wrath begins. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that God has not appointed us to wrath. And if He's not appointed us to wrath, that means He's not appointed us to suffer through it. He's appointed us to be delivered from it. From the hour of temptation promised here to the remnant. Praise God, those that keep, believe, and tremble before the Word of God, the living Word of God, and the written Word of God, will be delivered. For God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 In the context of Paul speaking about the man of sin in the hour of tribulation. We'll talk more about the rapture later in the book. I promise. It's an interesting thing to see how it all fits together. To see how the feast given to Israel in the Old Testament are a picture of Christ as His role of Messiah. And the Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the rapture of the church, Jew and Gentile. And the last trump spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is not the last trumpet judgment that the mid-tribbers assume. It's the trump represented in that Feast of Trumpets. Now, Ricky is more of an expert to speak to you on those things. I may let him just preach one Sunday when we get to that to give you some background. But it's interesting how it all ties together and how that Jewish wedding, that Jewish wedding and how the bridegroom snatches the bride and takes her off and then returns at some later time and declares the wedding. It's all a picture of Christ and His relationship with the church. Interesting. But remember this, as the day of the rapture draws near, and I believe it is drawing near, think about something. Satan always tries to counterfeit what Christ does. In fact, Antichrist is one big counterfeit of the Messiah. And it'll be revealed who he is. People will think it's Jesus. Many people in the churches, they will worship him and think it's Jesus. He's a counterfeit. I believe Satan is at work counterfeiting the rapture even now. I believe that. 
It's interesting that if you look at the transition from the Philadelphia church period into Laodicea, and I just find this interesting, maybe I'm way off base here, but I just get interested in stuff like this. It's interesting that around that time, there started to be strange disappearances of people in North America. It started back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and these things have steadily increased until today. Uh, even to where we have clusters around America where you have numerous cases of people just disappearing in wilderness areas and nobody knows why and they're never found. And there may be legitimate reasons for this. Places like the Smokies, Crater Lake, Yosemite, uh, the Adirondack Mountains. I believe, I don't believe this is Bigfoot. I don't believe it's aliens. I believe what could be going on is demonic counterfeiting. The day is near. Do you think the world's going to wake up when the church is raptured out of here and think, oh, Jesus is true, the Bible is true, we need to follow Christ? No. It's going to be written off. If people disappear mysteriously all the time around here, then it's not going to be a big deal. And it will easily be written off as Bigfoot or alien abduction or spontaneous combustion or all this nonsense that the forces of evil have deceived people into believing. And I believe there's counterfeiting. I believe there's wicked people that are just taken and there's no explanation because the devils are involved counterfeiting what Christ is going to do, but the counterfeits always fall short. That's just my opinion. It's an interesting point though. But when we see these counterfeits, when we see these things happening, when we see the church going to pot and becoming more and more led to sin and lukewarm, we need to not get discouraged. We need to take Jesus' advice in Luke 21, 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Your redemption draweth nigh. Now, historically, the church in John's day and the church of the Philadelphia period were de delivered from the tribulation period chronologically. They were delivered, they lived and died and went to be with the Lord before these things became to pass. So the promise was fulfilled literally and chronologically to these historic churches. It's kind of the same thing that happens with Hezekiah. There's judgment promised to him, but it goes on to say, but it didn't happen in his days. In fact, Hezekiah kind of laughed. And uh, after he showed his treasures to the ambassadors from Babylon, the prophet said, look, the Babylonians are going to come here and sack this temple one day. And Hezekiah said, basically responded, well, praise God, it's not going to happen in my days. So it's the same thing. You had chronological deliverance. But for the remnant living at the time of Christ's return, the Philadelphia church living at that time, the rapture is deliverance that's promised here. So we've got vindication for the faithful. We've got deliverance from the faithful. Deliverance from what is imminent. Behold, I come quickly. We need to hold fast what we have. If we're of little strength, trusting in Christ for strength, if we're keeping His Word, not denying His name, hold fast to those things, church. That no man will take our crown. That means to take our reward. Verse 12, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. 
The third promise, a promise of identity. You've got vindication, deliverance, and identity. Who are the overcomers? Every message to the church, we go back to 1 John 5. He that overcometh is a true Christian that believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that is born of God. The born-again believer is the overcomer. There aren't born-again believers who don't overcome. They are the overcomers. To the true Christians, to the remnant, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Visualize something real quick. What happens when there's an earthquake and you see the ruins of an earthquake, particularly uh, in other countries where the building structures aren't so modern? What usually is the only thing left standing? Pillars. When it comes to archaeological ruins that have suffered the uh, depredation of time, usually it's the pillars that are left standing. Left standing. The, this p- reference to a pillar here is talking about permanency, steadfastness, endurance. Those that are remnant followers of the Lord Jesus Christ have a permanency that exists outside the closed system of the physical universe that exists outside the physical laws of thermodynamics. Christians are a temple, a pillar in the temple of God. Now this is not obviously talking about a literal building in heaven. How do we know? How do we differentiate between literal truth and allegorical truth in Scriptures? It's a great lesson here. We let the Scripture do it. Revelation 21-22. What does it say? John is describing the new Jerusalem, verse 22, and I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. That's how we know this is symbolic here. Not just because we feel like it is, but because the Scriptures declare it to be. We can differentiate between literal and allegorical truth based upon the whole counsel of Scripture. There's no reason to believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ is anything but literal. The Scriptures don't give testimony otherwise. But here, the temple being referred to is a spiritual temple. Because there is no temple in that city. God and Christ are the temple. The true church are the pillars in that temple. That means a place of privilege in the eternal kingdom. They will stand when all else is fallen. So to be a temple or a pillar in the temple of my God is to have a permanent place of residence in the new Jerusalem where Jesus and God are the temple. Man, that's a promise we should rejoice over. And they'll no more go out. What does that mean for those that will no more go out? Does that mean that we'll never leave the city and enjoy the millennial kingdom here on earth? We'll never leave the city and enjoy the new heavens and the new earths? We'll be cooped up in this city? Do you know that the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, we'll see this later, those dimensions equate to a city that's four square. It's like a cube. And its length and breadth and height are like the distance from Miami to New York City. That's a pretty big city. Maybe we'll never need to go out of that. That's not only width and length, that's height. And it'll be suspended above the earth. But no more go out. is isn't talking about our inability to do things like Adam was able to do in the garden but it means that we'll no longer be exposed to temptations and trials of this present world. Not even to the temptations that will exist in the millennial kingdom when Christ rules with a rod of iron for those that dwell upon the earth. 
And we'll see those temptations will manifest themselves when Satan is loosed for a little season and gathers the nations to try to overthrow Christ. And exactly what happened to Sennacherib's army outside of, uh, uh, in Lachish outside of Jerusalem is going to happen to that army. But uh, no more exp- being exposed to temptations and trials of this present world. Permanent residence in the presence of God and from the presence of sin. Now, religion makes a lot of claims about the afterlife. Islam, Buddhism, uh, Mormonism, Hinduism, Jehovah's Witness, they all make these claims about the afterlife. But what's missing from these claims are promises of permanent residence in the presence of God. Mormonism doesn't teach that. You become your own God. You don't need the God of the Bible anymore. Hinduism doesn't teach that. You're absorbed into a force. Islam doesn't teach that. You'll be in, present, in, in paradise, but you'll never see God. So they don't teach permanent residence in the presence of God, nor do they teach permanent residence in a place that's free from the presence of sin. In fact, the afterlife promised in some of these religions glorifies sin. You die in jihad for, for Allah, you get 70 virgins that you can rape and have sex with as much as you want throughout all eternity. So that's another unique aspect of the promise of eternal life that differentiates the gospel from man-made religion. It's promise of eternal residence in the presence of God and it's promise of eternal residence from the presence of sin. This is not religion we're talking about here. Not uncertainty, but certain identity for the believer. So how can we speak of Christ as just something that He can do for us here and now and not talk about the future. When the promises of God are so tied to the future. I can't help but think of something my grandfather used to talk, a little quip about salvation. He used to say, salvation has three parts. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're all one. Justification is freedom from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. And glorification, freedom from the presence of sin. But friends, it all goes together. If you're justified, you will be glorified. So much so that Paul spoke of glorification in the past tense in the book of Romans. If you're just justified, you will be sanctified and you will be glorified. So don't tell me you know Christ, but there's no sanctifying work in your life. Or, that, or eternity is of no importance to you. Then you don't know Christ. This is not religion. This is not uncertainty. This is not the Gentile kingdoms of Daniel chapter 2 that crumble and fly away like the chaff of the wind. This is permanent identity. A pillar that will no more go out. Well, I wanted to finish today. I've done all of these things in four parts. Man, it's going to be a fifth part. I wanted to just talk about a little bit about the three-tiered identity tag that's talked about here. The name of God, the place of residence, my new name. This isn't Christ's new name. This is a new name He will have for you. And then there's a side note here about Jesus referring to God as my God. Sometimes the Muslims try to use that to say Jesus isn't God. And that's just the foolishness of men who cannot understand a proper context. So, we'll get into that a little bit next week. I'll finish up very shortly and then introduce to you the church at Laodicea. I don't want to go very late. It's 12.30 and I've been going late every Sunday 
And so, let's just stop here um, in the midst of verse 12, and I will finish up next week uh, you know, pretty quickly, and then we'll get into Laodicea. Does anybody have any questions? Freedom from the presence of sin in the presence of God for all eternity, that is the identity of the believer, a pillar that will no more go out. What a precious promise. And it makes the persecutions and the obstructions and the trials and tribulations of this world seem of little importance when you think about that and about deliverance from the real tribulation that's coming. People don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what's in store. I used to have a bumper sticker on my trailer. Jesus Christ is coming back soon and boy, is He mad. And people can't handle that. There are Christians that blow a gasket. But if you read 2 Thessalonians 1, you better believe it's true for those that reject the Gospel. He'll appear to their shame, but to the joy of those that tremble at His Word. Let's pray for the food and um, enjoy some fellowship. Father, thank You for this yet another Lord's Day to gather and hear Your Word. Thank You for the promises given to the faithful, those that would suffer for You, those that would tremble at Your Word. Thank You for the promises, Lord, of vindication from the One that matters, the Creator. Lord, for deliverance from the time of wrath that is coming to this earth. And Lord, for an identity that is eternal like a pillar in a temple of God. Thank You that You will one day deliver us from the very sin that still rears its ugly head in the old man, Lord. That You'll deliver us from the temptation that we still battle in this life. Thank You for that day when we'll be delivered from its very presence in a place, Lord, that we can't even imagine. Eye hath not seen, ear has not heard, neither can man understand the things that God hath prepared for those that love Him. Lord, we thank You, Lord. Hasten Your coming, Father. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, may we be like Philadelphia and help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses, to love the lost, to love the brethren, and to not be afraid of evil tidings. May our hope be in God. Bless the food You've provided. We thank You for it. We lift up those who are hungry, those in the, uh, in the body of Christ that are hungry and suffer today, that You would be their food and be their comfort. In Jesus' name.